This is TechSnap, episode 380. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on August 16th, 2018. It is brought to you by our three great sponsors, IX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-presenter, the admin, the engineer, and the teacher. It's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello there, Chris. Let's kick things off with our warm-up stories, Wes. And this first one comes from Krebs on Security. And it's a story about an entrepreneur who lost out on some cryptocurrency after a two-factor snafu. And now he is suing AT&T for $224 million. The claims come in a lawsuit filed this week in Los Angeles on behalf of one Michael Turpin who you may know as a prominent co-founder in one of the first angel investing groups backing Bitcoin enthusiasts. I did not know that. Now you do. I do. Turbin alleges that Crook stole almost $24 million worth of cryptocurrency after fraudulently executing a SIM swap. Now the question is, is that $24 million based off the beginning of the lawsuit or the current value of the crypto? (laughs) Because it's been going down. Ouch. So it seems the focus of the suit is he alleges that AT&T was participant in a SIM swap. Um, That sounds fancy. You've maybe done it yourself, Chris. Anytime you just need to change a SIM card, which is basically what pairs your physical phone hardware to the cellular network and identifies you to the carrier, you, you you might have to go in, you've got a new phone, maybe it takes a different size of SIM card. That happens all the time. Yeah, there's lots of reasons, really. Where the fraud aspect comes in is if you convince a carrier to switch a phone number to a SIM you control despite not legitimately having access to that phone number. So if I go in and say, hey, I'm Chris Fisher, uh, I need a new phone, I need to get a new SIM, you know, I just dropped my phone in the lake, it's all, it's all broken and I've lost it. If I could convince someone at that carrier that I was you and get access to it, well, then I get all your messages. So that is essentially what happened to Turpin. He woke up one day and discovered his phone wasn't working. Yeah, way back in January 7th of 2018, someone requested an unauthorized SIM swap on his AT&T account, causing his phone to go dead and sending all incoming texts and phone calls to the device that the attackers controlled. He also learned that his password had gotten changed remotely after 11 failed attempts, which came to light later on. AT&T still allowed that password to get changed. And their response was, well, you probably should have signed up for our, quote, extra security feature, which also requires a six-digit PIN before any account changes are made. It's not really our fault that after 11 failed attempts, we allowed a password change. That's not not our bad. What makes that worse is it seems Turpin was already using that feature. He claims that an investigation by AT&T into the 2018 breach found that an employee at an AT&T store in Norwich, Connecticut, somehow executed the SIM swap on his account without having to enter that extra security PIN. And that AT&T knew, or at least should have known, that employees could bypass its customer security measures. So if it's really just a formality, how much protection is that? That is really an insufficient response on AT&T's part. So Turpin's going after AT&T for that initial 24 mil, plus an additional 200 million in punitive damages. (laughs) Pain and suffering, Chris. Now, of course, for their part, AT&T dispute the allegations and look forward to presenting their case in court. And... This is a reminder, again, 
that SMS is not a sufficient medium for two-factor authentication. Use another system besides SMS, people. You know, and in some situations, okay, it, it, it's certainly better than no two-factor at all. Okay. And there may be some apps where your security, you, just, you know, it's not as big of a deal. But if you're securing $24 million of cryptocurrency, yeah, SMS is just not the thing. And really, phone numbers were never originally intended as an identity document. They're not, you know, they're just there as a way to connect you, not necessarily to prove that you are you. So I don't think the infrastructure exists here in a way that we really thought about. And like so many things the internet, and all sorts of communications. It, we just didn't design them with security to the start, and we're having to face the consequences now. Well, sort of along those same lines, Wes, a recent Windows 10 Insider Feedback HubQuest revealed that Microsoft is developing a new throwaway, sandboxed desktop feature called In Private Desktop. This feature will allow administrators to run untrusted executables in a secure sandbox without the fear that it'll make any other changes to the OS or any of to the systems files. And this will be a feature of Windows 10 Enterprise. There's not yet a ton of additional information, but you will need at least 4 gigabytes of RAM, 5 gigs of free disk space, 2 CPU cores, and CPU virtualization enabled in your BIOS. Aha, so we're going to have a little Hyper-V snuck in there, it sounds like. It seems that way. This is basically an inbox speedy VM that gets recycled whenever you close the app. The information that we have, Microsoft has pulled down now, but it had a few interesting details in there, like the description in private desktop provides admins a way to launch throwaway sandboxes. It also mentions in here about some certain limitations and that you'll be installing it through the Microsoft Store. There'll be a tab in there at the top. You go there and, oh, look, here's an install option if you're on Windows 10 Enterprise. Load it up. The first launch of an app will require admin privileges to install some additional features. And then after a reboot, you will have it and you can launch in private desktop normally and start playing. Seems like this could be pretty handy. And well, I wouldn't want to encourage anyone to go run, you know, run these even if even sandboxed. Obviously, sometimes you just have to or need to do research. I mean, there's, there's a million reasons. And if people are already doing it now, building their own homegrown solutions, at least now on Windows anyway, there could be a standard. I'll add this, too. I've been looking forward to seeing what Microsoft was going to do with Hyper-V on the desktop since they announced Hyper-V on server. And they've been more and more over the years using it in different ways. This is the first time we're really seeing it down at the application execution level, as far as I know. Not a big Windows 10 user, so I could be wrong. But the end user experience will be you double-click an icon and Hyper-V is launching in the background and creating a secure virtual system. That's a neat idea and a neat use for Hyper-V. And if Microsoft has this baked into the Windows kernel, why not use it in ways like this? It reminds me almost as a uh, mini version of Cubes. While on the topic of things in development for Windows, though, there's also another feature that could make a lot of admins and developers' lives a lot better. A proper PTY model is in the works for Windows 10. Chris, I don't know if you remember the dark days of your Windows past, but even through all the other improvements they've made, and there have been many, one thing that's still a little lackluster on that side of the fence is terminal support. I blame, though, and I'm not even joking, I blame the poor Windows terminal as the cause of so many people's terminal anxiety. You know, you always hear people who say, I don't want to do it on the command line, I want to use a GUI. I think it's the experiences with the Windows terminal that have given people that opinion. And it hasn't been great for developers either. Well, that could all be changing. This is a massive development, and this is a huge investment on Microsoft's part into the command line and the terminal application. That's a big deal. So what are they doing? 
Well, really, it's something of a major architectural change to solve a lot of the problems that have prevented really rich and well-done alternative terminals and just terminal applications on Windows. There's a number of problems they're really looking to solve here. Maybe the most primary of those is that Windows lacks a pseudo-terminal infrastructure. So when a user launches a command line application, let's say PowerShell, Windows itself hooks up a new or existing console instance to the app. And they, there's, not, there's not any other way to do it. Windows just takes care of it on the back end. Windows also obstructs third-party consoles and server apps. It does not currently provide terminals a way to supply any of their own custom communication pipes. So if you're trying to implement your own console application, there's not a lot of good hooks in the API layer as it stands now. That's why we don't really have any good alternative ones. Now, there are, you know, there are a few alternative terminals out there, but we don't see the same sort of breadth of options that we have in the Linux world. That is for certain. Also, Windows command line apps rely on the Win32 console API. That really reduces code portability because basically every other platform uses virtual terminal signaling. In case you've forgotten, a pseudo-terminal virtualizes a computer's serial communications hardware, exposing a master and a slave pseudo-device. So terminal apps on one side connect to the master pseudo-device, and a command line application, e.g., you know, something like a shell, bash, connect to the slave pseudo-device. When the terminal client sends text or control commands, which are encoded as text, to the master, the text is then relayed to the slave. Text emitted by the application is sent to the slave and is then routed back to the master, and thus to the terminal. This is really the core architecture on you know, many systems, Linux in particular here, that allow terminal, the terminal applications and interfaces that we know actually work, right? You have things where you're first you type into the computer, and that has to get interpreted, that has to be displayed, it has to be sent back to a shell for actual processing so that it can call, you know, actually, you know, it can use signals, it can actually make syscalls, it can do real work for you, and then after that's done, those communications all have to be relayed back, displayed to the screen, and then more input accepted. You see, that tickles me because it sounds like they've just invented the old remote terminal central server model only all jammed inside the Windows internals. And that's basically how it works. You know, when we all started out way back when in the computing industry, we had real terminals and that's how you interacted with the computer. So already we'd been designing programs that way. So it made sense when we, you know, suddenly had actual screens instead of terminals and the two were unified into one well, we would just make pseudo-terminals. So now we have a long legacy of Unix-like applications that all rely on this infrastructure. And until now, Windows has just been too different to have it really work very well. This has been one of Windows' biggest differences, really, is this different model here. And it's remarkable to see them working on this now and changing that. And they've heard from many developers who have frequently requested a PTY-like mechanism in Windows. You know, people yeah. working on the Windows subsystem for Linux, Docker, even Visual Studio. Yeah, this is obviously to appease developers. Good on them. I'm really happy to see it landing. They've got their own console team working on this, and they've really been, over the last four years or so, just overhauling the internals of how Windows console and command line applications work, but they haven't yet been in a good place start working on something like a pseudo-terminal. Until now. Microsoft has now added what they're calling ConPTY, which is a new console pseudo-terminal API. It provides a mechanism that's similar to the POSIX PTY model, but in a more Windows-relevant manner. 
They've also added VT Interactivity, which receives incoming UTF-8 text, converts each displayable text character into the corresponding input record, stores them in the buffer, basically handles things like Control-C, converting that into key event records that will then affect actual control actions later down the pipe. And they've added a renderer, which generates the actual terminal sequences necessary to move the cursor, render the text, all those things that you don't want to have to really deal with and expect there to be this application layer to do. And using this new CONPTY infrastructure, third-party consoles can now communicate directly with modern and traditional command line applications and speak text or terminal signals with all of them. If you haven't picked up on it by now, Chris, the console team's pretty proud of this and excited. They're calling it one of the most fundamental, liberating, and exciting changes that's happened to the command line in Windows for several years, if not decades. So ever? Ever? Ever. Yeah, I think ever it's might be. It's a total re-architecting. Huh. It's, it's, it's a total re-architecting, and it's a shift to doing it the Unix way. And it's going to result in easier and better times for developers and sysadmins. I think it's pretty fascinating. There's some really big things still in the works for that old Windows desktop. They would like to say spread the word. You know, if you're if you're in this world or you uh, maybe know some developers who work on those things, they've already started doing converting some internal tools to use the new architecture. Ah. And they're working with the Con Emu project, which you may be familiar with if you are stuck on the Windows side of things. Expect these features in uh, the fall 2018 release of Windows 10 and uh, go play with them. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. ixsystems is the leader in building solutions around open source software. They offer secure, unified, and cost-effective systems. A solution based on ix servers and TrueNAS unified storage appliances provides highly available, high-performance, and feature-rich infrastructure for mission-critical VMs, your storage systems, and maybe just your podcast. Trust me, I know from personal experience. They have deep ties in the industry, the hardware and the software. And that's why they're big, big supporters of both FreeNAS and TrueNAS and a bunch of BSD projects. Wes and I have been IX fans for years. There's so many great things to say about IX. But the one thing I think we're pretty confident in saying, if you're going to have back-end infrastructure, there's nobody better to buy it from than IX ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you go to find out more. If you want to deploy a large virtualization workload, you need to talk to ix. They can help you out. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there, learn more, and grab their white paper. Also, I want to say a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring this episode of the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go to save $25 off a Ting device or get $25 in service credit if you bring a device to Ting. Ting is smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is just $23 per month per phone. It's really simple. It's $6 a month for the line and then your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use... That's what you pay. There's no contract. You can turn things on or off. They have a great control panel to manage all of it. And they are the original home of fanatical customer support. They hire phone geeks to answer the questions of phone users. It's like that tech person in your family, you know, the one that's usually probably you if you're listening to this show. That's who Ting hires to do the service support. And I say that not just tongue-in-cheek, but also as somebody who has experienced one of the most incredible customer experiences stories of my life was through Ting. 
been a customer for more than four years. And you can do everything through their website, including activating devices, buying phones, all of it. And if you bring one, they have CDMA and GSM, so check their BYOD page. There's chances they've got support for it. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. And then, a tremendous thank you to the very intelligent folks over at DigitalOcean, builders of a system that's going to help you get more work done faster than you could ever imagine. And when you go to do.co slash snap, you'll get a $100 credit when you sign up with a new account for 60 days over at DigitalOcean. With industry-leading price to performance, $100 for 60 days is going to get you far. I used to come on here with a $10 credit until you get there for two, you get by for two months. I don't even know what you're going to do with $100, but I encourage you to try it. They have great systems. My favorite rig, for gigabytes of RAM, two CPUs, 80 gigabytes of SSD, three terabytes of transfer. It's three cents an hour. Every DigitalOcean system has enterprise-grade SSDs. They have data centers all over the world and a beautiful, brilliant dashboard to manage all of it. You might say it's a dashboard for days. And then an API that's well-thought, well-documented, clean and easy to use, and lots of open-source apps built around it, ready to go for you. All of that's available at DigitalOcean. That's just stock. Then you add in all these other great features like the monitoring that's built in, network-level firewalls, so that way they don't hit you at the rig, i.e. you don't have to worry about setting up firewalls on your systems. You can block that stuff at the network level as you should be able to. Private networking between your systems, the options are endless at DigitalOcean. And when you combine that with their global reach, their incredible performance, SSDs for everything, and the $100 credit, there's really no reason not to go try out something you've been thinking about doing, launch a new project, put something in production. The full range is yours at DigitalOcean. You just get started by going to do.co slash snap. Some call it foreshadow, others call it the L1 terminal fault, but either way you slice it, that prediction that this was going to be the year of speculative execution flaws is definitely ringing true. And it's been proved true once again with the L1 terminal fault vulnerability, which allows a malicious actor to bypass memory access security controls ordinarily imposed and managed by the operating system or a hypervisor. An attacker can use this vulnerability to read any physical memory location that happens to be cached in the L1 data cache of the processor. I want to interject here for a moment. While this isn't totally shocking to anyone that's been listening to the TechSnap program for the last year, this is still a big deal because it affects multi-tenant networks like your AWSs and your Google Clouds that have multiple different companies, some of which who are competitors, all running on the same physical host. And so when a vulnerability allows you to bypass the hypervisor restrictions, it immediately kind of becomes a big story. And so when a vulnerability allows you to bypass the hypervisor restrictions on the Intel platform, it's a pretty big story. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's recall a little bit about some of the background we need to understand the L1 terminal fault. And it might make the most sense to just start with that L1 cache itself. Now, as computers got faster and more complicated, CPUs sort of outpaced everything else. And as you're probably aware, getting a value from memory is so slow. And that has been a huge reason that speculative execution and then all these vulnerabilities we've been talking about happen because the CPU can operate so much faster and often just ends up stalled, waiting for something to return after it's requested it out of main memory. Since the processor is waiting around anyway, it can speculatively execute certain branches and, well, if memory comes back and says, turns out you shouldn't have done that, it'll throw the whole thing away. But in between all of these 
are a lot of caches. In particular, because memory is so slow, you might as well have somewhere faster you can stick frequently used values. Modern CPUs usually have three of these, L1, L2, and L3. L1 is the one we're concerned about here, and it is the smallest but the fastest, and it's right next to most of the functional units, the units on the CPU that actually do the, you know, the, the math and the physical bit operations that make up computing. It's right next to those for the fastest possible access. Notably, it's also shared between hyperthreads. In fact, most modern processors almost never operate directly on data stored in external memory. Instead, they're more optimized to work on data that's contained within the cache. And as a result, these caches are heavily used, and just about anything that might be faster to store there instead of having to go out to memory has a way of finding itself in that cache. Now, another part of background that we're going to need to understand this vulnerability is recalling just a little bit about memory management and page tables. Modern systems use what we call virtual memory, which means the memory addresses used by user space and kernel processes do not refer directly to a physical memory address. And you can think of memory oftentimes as just this big, giant array, you know, a sort of numbered list of all the memory cells that you might have, and each one can store a certain amount. Instead of letting programs access that directly, each program sees its own virtual memory space. And there's specific hardware, usually the memory management unit, or MMU, and specific data structures that the processor is aware of, known as page tables, that then perform the task of translating a lookup of a virtual memory address into a physical address. That physical address is then dispatched out to RAM, the address is looked up if it's not in the cache, and then returned back to the processor for further processing. The core component of a page table is the page table entry. A single entry stores information for a single page and describes things such as the page frame number, which tells the processor where to find that page in physical memory. There's other bits that control things like memory protection, access permissions, whether the page is cached, whether it's dirty, and more. All of this, though, depends on what's known as the present bit which is the bit in the least significant position. If that bit is not set, well, then the page is actually not present in physical memory, and any attempt to reference it will then be a page fault. So this might be something where it's been swapped off to disk or just hasn't been loaded yet. According to Intel's documentation, for non-present pages, none of the other bits in the page table entry are supposed to be meaningful at all, right? So if it's present, these all have a bunch of meanings. If it's not present, so that least significant bit is zero, well, it's supposed to be up to the OS. The kernel can do stuff. And modern operating systems, Windows, Linux, etc., all use those to say things like, oh, here's the address you can find it in swap, and all in their own specific ways, because at that point, the CPU isn't supposed to care about it. Now, since they've so clearly documented it, turns out Intel CPUs do exactly the opposite during speculative execution. No, you're telling me Intel has particularly documented this functionality and it behaves opposite of that way? It sure does. <gasps> Shocker, Wes. There's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> there sure is. Now, this is where things remind us a little bit of Meltdown because L1TF, as it's known, really relies on particular implementation details of how speculative execution happens in Intel-specific processors. In this case, the processor is trying to make page table translation and lookup as fast as possible. So instead of having to go check whether a page is present or not, 
and, and go do all the correct access checks. It just assumes page table entries are valid and permits access to the underlying memory location prior to completing any of those checks. Now, as we've said, obviously when you're doing a memory lookup, you first want to check the caches. So the processor will preemptively search the L1 cache for any physical address matching bits in the page table entry, and then it forwards any match it might find to whatever speculative operations it was performing. Now, after a while, the processor will detect that that page table entry actually wasn't valid, so whatever was in the cache isn't what you should be using, and it signals the page fault, also known as terminal fault. Hmm. The processor then does the normal stuff of unwinding and throwing away all the speculated results, but as we've seen in all these other attacks, the speculative results can impact caches. So if you can get the OS to get the CPU to do some speculation, you might be able to go retrieve those results out of the cache? Yes, that speculatively executed code can trick the processor through a page table entry that is marked as not present into looking up a physical memory address that shouldn't actually be valid. Therefore, it can jump through a lot of the security protections that we've come to rely on in terms of memory management and then read from an address that it has no business reading, something like kernel space, for instance. Now, it is speculative executed, so all the results should be wiped away. But as as we've seen, that doesn't really happen, and there's enough results left in caches and timing operation differences and other side channel methods that you can actually leak valuable information. So let's get to the core of what's going to be one of the more common threat vectors for this vulnerability. That's the multi-tenant systems I mentioned earlier in the show. If I got access to a host, could I extract information from the guest machines that were on that host using this vulnerability? Yes. There are a few caveats to how this all might work. In particular, a lot of this relies on what's known as extended page tables, which is a hardware performance feature that allows hypervisors to delegate part of memory management to guest virtual machines. Now remember, there are two page table lookups going on here. First, there's the virtual memory location inside the VM to the physical memory location, again, inside the VM. And then from that virtualized physical location to the actual physical location on the computer. When there's a page fault inside the virtual machine that can result in an untranslated guest physical address being treated as a host physical address, and that gets forwarded to our old friend, the L1 cache. This makes it possible for a malicious guest to create an extended page table entry that is marked as not present, but also contains a host physical address from which it would like to read. And if that host physical address has been cached, well, it can read it. What this really means is if a malicious guest can cause the hypervisor or any other guest to load a secret into the L1 cache, it can extract that data using an attack that is remarkably similar to Meltdown. Now, there is a bit of good news here, Chris, so don't worry. The attack variant that's just on your machine, if you're just trying to defend against a, you know, an untrusted user on your machine and you're not worrying about all the details of extended page tables, well, that's actually pretty easily mitigated and it's already in a lot of upstream kernels out there. So go, go do your updates as always. That involves changing the way the page table entry looks when the present bit is not set. So it will still eventually get translated and sent and read as a physical address, but the kernel will do some bit masking to make sure that that physical address is way the heck up in memory such that it'll never actually get to a real address. You'll never have that much RAM, and it just won't return anything useful. 
So it's not correcting the weird behavior of the Intel processor. The kernel's just working around it, and there shouldn't really be much of a performance impact. Unfortunately, the situation is once again worse for virtual machines. Since the successful exploit requires that the data be contained within the L1 cache on a vulnerable machine, it's possible to arrange for that cache to be flushed before returning to the guest virtual machine in cases where secrets or other data of interest to a malicious party might have already been loaded into the cache. Now, of course, flushing a cache is not without cost, but a refill from the L2 cache, which is just a little bit bigger and a little bit slower, well, it's still pretty fast. And those two are are usually pretty close together, located nearby, and that happens fairly regularly. It's like a few hundred cycles. This is available both as a manual software fallback sort of flush, and there's also a hardware-assisted flush that's going to be available through some microcode updates. Kernels from major vendors are going to have this flush mitigation automatically enabled whenever virtualization is in use. So hopefully once you've updated, this just gets fixed. Maybe it's a little bit slower here or there, but hey, at least you can trust your machines again. Now, there are some further considerations people should probably know about, especially if this is impacting systems that they're responsible for. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance here if you're a big user of hyperthreading. Um, as we mentioned before, these L1 caches are shared between hyperthreads. So if you're a big cloud vendor or doing anything serious that has a lot of systems that might be running on a shared core, well, that's not always best practice. Usually you want to allocate a physical core to a virtual machine, but hey, it's pretty tempting to just you know treat the hyperthreads as if they are separate cores. But there are some security limitations if you're in that position need to read more about this. Or if you're a user of Intel's software guard extensions, that is also compromised by these vulnerabilities. Now, they've got a microcode update out there. Probably best to do your homework on that one, too. You can find a whole bunch of more links on all of this nonsense over at our show notes. techsnap.systems slash 380. And that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap program. Thanks so much for catching the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can get every week's episode at techsnap.systems slash subscribe. But before we get out of here... We wanted to leave you with a cool little find. You found this, Wes, so I'll let you take ownership of it. It's, it's like your own self-deployable pager duty. Really, it's a combination of a whole mess of different monitoring tools. You know, if you've been listening to TechSnap for a while, that while I value Nagios, I don't really need to set it up for my use or the network's use. But I do want something that can easily notify me when services I expect to be running suddenly fall down. Now, obviously, you can write all kinds of bash scripts or any other sort of system that you string together, but it can be nice if this isn't something you want to spend a whole amount of time on and you don't necessarily want to pay for an external service. Well, meet Cabot. Cabot is a free, open-source, self-hosted infrastructure monitoring platform that provides some of the best features of things like PagerDuty, Pingdom, and Nagios without a lot of their cost and complexity. I love that it's self-hosted. And as all things, it's deployable as a Docker image. It's up on Docker Hub. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And it's got a lot of common things that you might just want to use. One of my favorites is it supports pulling metrics from Graphite. So if you're already trying to make charts and monitor the health of your applications that way, this fits right in. It also has that standard stuff like just checking a web endpoint for status code or response content. That's pretty flexible. And... It can check on your Jenkins build statuses. So really, if you're doing any kind of small software or ops work, try Cabot. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be too surprised if in the distant future we're not maybe running something like Cabot or Cabot itself to monitor some of the back-end stuff here on the network. I'm getting ready to really start taking that seriously. So maybe we'll use this. I'd like to hear your suggestions for tools of this caliber. It's not a huge thing. Say maybe only a dozen services or so you want to monitor, dozen hosts and dozen services or so. What would you use? Let us know. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. We'll try out a few of them potentially in the future when we get to that phase and let you know what we thought of them. So that'd be pretty good to like get a nice list from the audience. We'd love to see that. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the TechSnap program. You can follow Wes Payne on the Twitter. He's at Wes Payne. Wait, right? I sure am. Okay, what about good. you, Chris? I think I'm at Chris Elias. You got Wes Payne. Like, that's so, you just, you got so lucky in the name department. So I'm at Chris Elias, like a schmuck over here, and the network is at Jupiter Signal. Now, that's a strong one. That I is. like that. Mm. Yeah, the network got a good one at Jupiter Signal. And then again, our website, techsnap.systems. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>